Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Zimbabwe is arbitrarily arresting, torturing, and killing its citizens. What do we do about it? Next, Senegal has barred two leading candidates from contesting its presidential elections on February 24th. Is one of West Africa's leading democracies backsliding? Plus, we have an in-depth conversation on human rights in Africa. How do we engage civil society, the private sector, and the entertainment industry in this dialogue? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Mnangagwa, has plunged the country back into another crisis. With regard to beatings, yes, it is just killing. Yeah, we also want to see, you said judicial killings. This is where the army is directly and purposefully killing people. Yes. We would want to see evidence. We see all this in social media. But we would want to see evidence. Calm is back now in Zimbabwe, or is it precarious calm? Total calm has come back to Zimbabwe. If there was any lingering hope that this was a new day in Zimbabwe, that the new president would be different than Robert Mugabe, I think the violence that the security forces have now exacted on protesters and civilians has really closed the door of that debate. So joining me today to discuss Zimbabwe's economic and political crisis is Karine Nantulia, who is the African Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch. We also have Amy Lear, Director of the Human Rights Initiative at CSIS. And Chidi Odinkalo, the Senior Team Manager for the African Program of the Open Society Justice Initiative. Chidi is also the co-author of a wonderful book, too Good to Die, Third Term, and the Myths of Indispensable Man in Africa. Kareem, can you walk us a little bit through what's happened in Zimbabwe and how the regime has responded? Today, in a country like Zimbabwe, the question is to what extent former liberation movement are capable of initiating change. President Mugabe was deposed and um, there was a lot of hope. There was a lot of uh, expectation from a section of the international community and a section of uh, the Zimbabwean society. The wide protests that have been going on for, for weeks and months now, with obviously fatal casualties exerted by the security forces, point at a failure of the current government to extract itself from the former uh, governance and political framework that was, uh, that was there since the 1980s. And at the heart of it, I would say that there's an issue of impunity. Not a single case has been brought uh, involving members of the police, members of the military, and that is what is really eroding and aggravating the situation in Zimbabwe. Yeah, when the military took over in November of 2017, removing President Mugabe, they tried to say that Zimbabwe was going to be open for business, right? This was a way to sort of court the international community and help with almost a decade-long now economic crisis. But I think it's clear from what happened in the last couple of weeks that it's business as usual in Zimbabwe. The government raised fuel prices. And so immediately people went on the streets and protests and the military responded in kind. There have been reports of rape and beating and a detainment. Now, Chita, you've been in this situations before. You've lived in periods of dictatorship in Nigeria. You're often asked to advise in situations like this. You know, what would you tell foreign governments and civil society after uh, such a brazen act of violence by the government? 
it's difficult to transpose these things from one country to the other. Every country is unique. In this situation, President Mnangagwa was hoping to use the elections to unlock access to goodies that would enable him to reconfigure the macroeconomic space and in so doing also affect civil and political rights. That didn't happen because of the aftermath of the elections in particular. The Motlante Commission into the post-election violence was then supposed to help legitimize him in some form, but it didn't give him what he wanted, which was a diplomatic soft landing that would enable the rest of the world to pour in. And in the aftermath of that, raising petrol prices by 167% created a natural trigger. Whenever you raise petrol prices by anything close to this number, you're likely to have people on the streets. A government that did that, it's absolutely predictable. A government that did that ought to have had a fallback option. They should have had other policy instruments besides bullets and bayonets. It seems to me leadership is required at a level that enables the Zimbabwean government to communicate with its people and carry them along. And that does not seem to be in the toolkit of the uh, ZANU-PF, has not been historically. The big five countries within the AU traditionally have been South Africa, Nigeria, Libya, Egypt, and Algeria. All of them are in a bit of a mess, mm-hmm. one way or the other. And that means Zimbabwe has got to try and figure it out. Zimbabweans have got to try and figure it out. In episode four of into Africa, we talked about South Africa's foreign policy and this hope that under Ramaphosa that he would be um, more foreign-leading than Zuma. And I think you're right, Chidi, that maybe that was naive. But there's been some criticism, including Kareen from Human Rights Watch, about the South Africa position. Do you want to talk a little about that? The Minister of Foreign Affairs, Lindiwe Sisulu, said that they were going to review their voting guidelines in order to have them in harmony with standards of human rights. And President Ramaphosa himself said uh, that he was going to champion uh, the legacy of Nelson Mandela in terms of human rights. Let's remember that uh, South Africa is one of the guarantors of the Burundi peace process as well. It was very important and it will remain very important for South Africa to be reminded and to look within itself and give itself the opportunity and the mandate to speak on human rights abuse. As Chidi just mentioned, obviously there are elections in May. Uh, The ANC as a political movement also has its own tensions and its own challenges uh, that it has to deal with. Uh, Probably one, one projection that one could make is to think that beyond May, we might see um, a, a clearer vision and a clearer strategy coming from South Africa. What happens in Zimbabwe does affect South Africa in terms of people migrating from Zimbabwe to South Africa and the economic challenges. So I think you're right that they're going to have to wait through May, but I also envision a scenario in which the instability in Zimbabwe does come home in this election and the ANC probably will have to think of a way to address this. Ramaphosa said, while this was going on, well, we should get sanctions off of Zimbabwe, which I thought was was fairly tone deaf given uh, the abuses that we were seeing. Now, Amy, you look at these sort of situations across the world, and I'm going to take Chidi's really important advice and not ask you to compare apples to oranges and Burma to Zimbabwe. But the U.S. policy right now uh, has largely been one of caution, of ones you know communicating to the government of Zimbabwe that they shouldn't be abusive. Uh, I think they're still trying to figure out uh, how far they could go after the election had so many problems with it. But when you hear this story of where Zimbabwe is and what's your reaction? We've had sanctions on Zimbabwe in different forms for a long time. I think the natural reaction from this administration will be more sanctions. And that may be appropriate. I think it's not sufficient. 
I wonder if there's some way of having a bit more of a clear vision for where the U.S. wants to see Zimbabwe evolve to mm -hmm. and really creating like almost like a roadmap with like sort of carrots and sticks, right? If they were to have more accountability, per Karine's point, if there were some measures of this would prove that you're working on accountability, then we will, you know, help you improve economically this way or provide this kind of assistance for your economy, you know, assuming that there aren't also attacks on civil society. I think that's a really good suggestion. And what's happened on the Zimbabwe policy process is that everything is tied up in the election. So whether the election or is good or bad is going to really, I think, tie the hands of foreign actors on what they're going to do. And I'll just add, Amy, that I think it's not just communicating to the government in Zimbabwe and being clear with the United States government and all of its many agencies, but it's talking to the, the Zimbabwean people yeah, and the region sure. and SAG, yeah, yeah. too. I think that we've been doing this bilaterally for so long. Yeah, no, clearly, clearly. But I think it's important for the U.S. to also have its own starting point of some kind of vision and then try to work with partners to evolve that. But I'm wondering whether there isn't also a bit of policy sclerosis in, in, in many ways. Mm. I could be wrong, but for a while, uh, my sense is there's been a bit of a division of labor in terms of policy leadership um, internationally on Zimbabwe. And the Brits appear to have been saddled with taking the lead. Now, all the policy oxygen has been sucked up by Brexit. Right. And so there is no engagement by the United Kingdom with Zimbabwe. And to the extent that they tried to engage, they wanted to suck up to the Mnangagwa uh, administration um, for what it's worth. But th there was really no rethinking, or at least no, no re-examination of the policy <laughs> toolbox by the Brits. The South Africans had a word for it, Tramaphoria. The question now, it seems to me, is who provides that policy leadership and reimagination of the policy space concerning Zimbabwe? At the moment, it does not seem to me as if there is anybody willing to do that or able to step up to the plate. I think this is a, a conversation that we should absolutely revisit because between the politics here in the United States and Brexit in Great Britain and Europe's focus on migration issues and then Nigeria and Ethiopia and South Africa focused on elections or security challenges, uh, we are in a, a vacuum here when it comes to who's going to step up when there's a crisis on the doorstep of a neighbor or one that really sort of offends the values and is problematic for the global community. So maybe we'll come back in another episode and do it because I think that'd be a really important conversation. With the two leading figures of the opposition out of the race, it seems there's no stopping Mikey Sala. He's been opening one infrastructure project after another, jump-starting a now booming economy. Senegal's holding presidential elections on the 24th of February. This should be an opportunity to praise Senegal's democracy. We complimented what Senegal did in 2000 when the opposition won, uh, when people went to the streets in 2012 to stop the president from going for a third term. That was another milestone. And here we are. It's the second term for President Macky Sall. And two of the key opposition leaders, Kareem Wad, the son of the former president, and Khalifa Sall, no relation, who was the former mayor of Dakar, they have been banned from this election. And so I think this questions the credibility of this election. Election. The Constitutional Court has upheld that conviction, but it still has this, at least for me, this sense of politicization. This, this worked out very well for Mackie Saul. 
I think most people are already calling the elections for Makisal at the first ballot, and, and people are, are suggesting that it may not go to the second ballot, uh, which has been traditionally with Senegal's elections. But you can't rule out uh, things. There are all manner of power blocks in, Zim- uh, in uh, Senegal mm-hmm. that are not very well known, particularly the leaders of the brotherhoods. And the way Senegal's electoral system works is well beyond the parties. Anything is possible. But it is true. The increasing instrumentalization of the shibboleth of anti-corruption mm. mm-hmm. uh, yeah. has become a major feature of African politics. You mm-hmm. see it in Senegal with Khalifa Sal and, and Karim Wad. You see it in Nigeria with what's happening with the chief justice. You're seeing it in too many places around the continent. You're seeing it in Ethiopia. You're seeing it in Ethiopia. Now, that, I think, is the new territory uh, that we're going to go into. I think that's a really astute insight. Kareen, what are your thoughts on what's happening in Senegal? And maybe if you want to broaden out to some of the bigger issues that Senegal faces. As an organization, we tend to be very neutral when it comes to elections. We pay close attention to, obviously, violence around the elections, knowing that elections are trigger points, really, either before or after. In terms of the, the broader issues, I think Senegal... It suffers from what I would call societal perceptions, which are countering a strong human rights agenda within the country. Senegal as a country has very uh, progressive uh, laws and policies, whether you look at education, whether you look at elections, actually, and good governance. We need to recognize its role in terms of ousting uh, Yaya Jame, the prosecution of Hissène Abre. That is something that Senegal is known for, being a champion of human rights in times and areas where no one is necessarily inclined to do something, no other state. So that is something I would like to point out. The other thing is Human Rights Watch as an organization, yes, has conducted uh, many uh, research and investigation on issues of what I would call minority groups, whether you look at teen pregnancies, uh, LGBT rights, the Taliban children, which is a problem, not only in Senegal, but in other countries. You have gays and lesbians who are now uh, living as a sub-society because of uh, the harassment that they are subject to. They are killed. They are forced to basically uh, uh, flee their countries. So those are the things where you look at a country like Senegal and you wish that the domestication of any law would obviously go hand in hand with enforcement mechanisms. Again, we go back to the very issue we started with, which is the cycles of impunity and, uh, and accountability, which have to be uh, addressed. You are absolutely right. And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up Senegal, not only because the election uh, will be just a little bit after our episode airs, but U.S. policy tends to want to find winners and losers. Which are the good countries and which are the countries that are not so good? And I think because Senegal is often in that winner category, it's almost imperative to talk about it holistically. And I think we should be doing that with any country. You know, none of us made it to a point where we are free from criticism and we can't perfect our society. And so I like Senegal in part because it does have such a great democracy record and some of the things that you mentioned, Kareem. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be vigilant and keep talking about the things that they could perfect. And I thought this election particularly is a good one because closing political space is a problem across the region. And Senegal is not getting a lot of attention for it, not as much as it was getting. Maybe, Amy, you could talk a little bit of some of the work you've been doing on closing political space. I think it's really important to use whatever influence the U.S. has, which 
you know, may or may not be strong at the moment to try to support countries that aren't in a bad place, right? Like let's let's support countries that are generally on the right trajectory. And there's a global problem with what gets called closing civic space. So this idea that civil society has less and less space to operate around the world as populism and authoritarianism are on the uprise. Things like having LGBT groups mm. in worse and worse positions is often an indicator, right? It's these vulnerable groups that get oppressed first. And then it can spread to other groups, counterterrorism laws that actually mm-hmm. have the effect of cutting off funding for civil society organizations. That's another indicator. Attacks on political opposition, right? When you just start seeing mm-hmm. series of events, it, it can be an indicator that space is beginning to close. And I don't think we're anywhere near closed space in Senegal. But it's an opportunity to support mm-hmm. all that's good there and keep pushing that. We put out a case study on Tunisia recently, and Tunisia is another country that is doing okay but has had some concerning indicators around civic space. And it's not getting that much attention. I think it's because there are all these fires to put out. But it's this preventive approach, right? Like, you don't want a fire. Yeah, So pay attention earlier. Um, Uh, And I think it'd be great uh, to just see a little more attention on places like Senegal and, and see what we can do to be supportive. I feel like we're in this back to the future moment uh, about trying to make this argument why human rights matters in foreign policy. It's really on the table in a new way under this administration. And I think that's something that we have to really grapple with is trying to go back to the fundamentals and make this argument, which is not really much of an argument for me, but clear that human rights does matter. But Kareen, can you give us a little bit of a picture of where some of the bigger issues are for you on the continent right now? If you look at what's been happening for the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, you see uh, an evolution of three trends. The first one is really the issue of election as a democratic tool. You have more and more democratic elections between courts, democratic, but as a process that is widely acknowledged. Now, the other trend is how do you institutionalize than those democratic tools. We've seen recently the development of a check and balance tool in the DRC with the Catholic Church Association sending 40,000 observers. That had not been on the continent for uh, as long as I can remember. You had international observers, but a local uh, indigenous group positioning itself as a legitimate mediator within that process was very important. Uh, The other one is the demand for justice and the agitation by civic groups on the ground and the population. And that, in my view, has to be read within the natural evolution of the continent. We've had the 60s where you had the the fight for independence. After that, we had the military coups and really the struggle for democratic governments. Right now, uh, one of the uh, main issue at hand is the people again claiming and demanding justice and accountability. So it's the whole issue of institutionalizing tools that have been on paper, that have been discussed within peace agreements, but which have not been domesticated. And, and civic groups, associations, human rights activists are now more and more vocal. So Chidi, when you were Nigeria's chair of the National Human Rights Commission, 
Um, some of the trends that Karine is talking about were there too, right? Elections were happening, but maybe they weren't particularly in the time period of 2003 and 2007, a full expression of the people's vote. Um, we saw a growing number of civil organizations, and I think you know, particularly the legislative and judiciary pushing back at times, uh, and this demand for social justice. So when you're inside a government, or at least in a government-appointed position, what are the best arguments to advance that conversation? I just want to add two more things to the trends okay. that Karin pointed to. Uh, one for me is leadership and leadership <clears throat> replacement. It seems to me we've got a crisis of leadership in a lot of the countries uh, around the continent. And the fact that new capable leaders are not emerging is a problem. There was a timeline of Africa's evolution, in, mm-hmm. at least even in my own lifetime, where you had l- quite a, a decent supply of capable leaders. The other is money. You do need money to challenge government, right. you know, that just is the reality. Fortunately, politics isn't you know, free. Yeah, exactly. True. And the reason the Catholic Church in the DRC can be a credible voice, it has independent capability to raise money mm. from worshippers. And howsoever we do it, we've got to address the political economy mm-hmm. of how mm-hmm. money is raised. But to get back to your question, Judd, I actually did find that leading the Human Rights Commission in Nigeria, indeed in any country, is one of the most powerful positions. It's not a position you necessarily give to your friends, right. uh, but somebody has got to do it. Uh, and I remember meeting with the then chief of army staff who was recently assassinated in Nigeria off record, and I told him, look, you guys don't like me. I know it. Mm-hmm. But you know what? You and I, we've got to care enough about this country to allow me to do the job I'm doing with you people. Because if I don't do it as a Nigerian, Mm -hmm. foreigners are going to do it and they will not like you any more than you think I dislike you. Now, that was the breakthrough moment for me. But it took a heck of a lot of time (laughs) persuading them that, you know what, as much as you don't like me, I love this country at least as much as you do. And I don't want it going south any more than you do. And and I do think that increasingly civil society has got to understand that it does not have a monopoly of patriotism or a monopoly of idealism. Yeah. That in every mm. country across our continent, there are people in the state sector who care about a country or countries that work, but who just need to build confidence, find partners to work with in civil society. And civil society also has got to do something else. We've got to improve our professionalism. There's a lot of noise that gets made quite often, but the rigor of our work is at best often dubious. And and I tell my friends in civil society and my colleagues in civil society, we can do much better. And when you've got authority on your side because you've put in the work you need to put in, the state actually will respect you even when they don't like you. And I can say even from as a non-African, Amy as a non-African, that what you are postulating, Chidi, is, you know, what I would want. I don't want to be mm. the one from the West do it, wagging a finger. That doesn't even work. It can be really counterproductive. Really counterproductive, fact. right? Like the best initiative is for African civil society and for others from the outside to be supportive of it. This is why um, I was so eager to have you on, because I thought you were forthright about how to make these arguments in ways that are going to be resonant uh, and are going to work with government. And there's a variety of 
human rights organizations that um, are there on paper, and then there are ones that are really work to have that breakthrough moment. But Amy, maybe two things. One, if there's other thoughts on how the United States or Europe should or should not engage in this space. And then I think you've done some great work on the private sector. I think my colleagues at the table raised some really important questions and, and issues around the role of external parties, right? That in a way, when the U.S. or other countries come in and, and say, oh, things are terrible in this country, sometimes we're actually undermining civil society there, right? And then they get delegitimized as foreign puppets. And so I think the question for the U.S. is how does the U.S. support legitimate civil society in, in, in other countries without trying to control mm -hmm. them, tell them what to do, project our agenda onto them? I think, I mean, they're all hard questions. I don't have the answer. I just wanted to add to what you said that, and I've seen it in different countries, DRC being one of them, Uganda being one of them, Burundi to a certain extent, mostly within the Great Lakes region. I think the media, as well as the private sector, as you mentioned, is a great vehicle. So instead of going maybe funding directly and interacting directly with the civil society, which, as you said, just feeds into the whole neo-colonial narrative that we've seen for the last couple of years. Uh, but working with the media, working with the private sector, uh, medium and small enterprises could also be a tool for um, empowering. No, I tend to agree. Although civil society has got to learn to make better use and more effective okay. use I agree. of the digital ecosystem. Okay. I don't think we, we do mm. it as effectively as particularly politicians yes. or the entertainment sector. And there's a great deal we can learn from mm -hmm. narrative creation and narrative, man uh, mm. in narrative, creation and narrative management and sustenance. Mm -hmm. uh, and in just breaking down some of our tragedies to communities that need to learn about what we are talking about. And creating narratives that actually resonate with a broader community. Yes. Right? That aren't kind of in like, yes. I went to law school, I'm talking about human rights law language, right? That's not yeah. really a way to connect with a broader population. Yeah. Episode four was about media. And I'm really glad you said that, Karine, because I think it's so important. And there's so much intrepid, powerful yeah. journalism right now. But at the same time, we know how much it's being repressed with the assassination of one of the guys on Anas's team in Ghana. Yeah. Oh, yes. um, you know, yes. there's mm. that's a really a powerful example of how people who are exposing corruption and are trying to keep the, the space open are also targeted by people who they're threatening their vested interests. Mm. And, and we need to be clear, one, that that is unacceptable. And then I think, to your point, how can we be investing in this sector because it has all these multiple you know, benefits to us? You had asked me a bit, Judd, about the yeah. role of the private sector. And it'd be really interesting to hear from others about the role of the African private sector. I've thought more about the role of, let's say, the US and European private sector, which obviously is complicated, depending on how business conducts itself. It can have some really adverse impacts on human rights. But I think what we're seeing right now, because of sort of the lack of leadership on human rights right now at the state level, some parts, I think, of civil society are looking more and more to business as a potential ally, which is not something you would have seen, let's say, 10 years ago. I know some organizations that are trying to engage with private sector companies to have them actually speak out on behalf of human rights defenders, for example. And it's slow going, um, but they've gotten a few companies to sign up to this initiative. It's interesting to try to explain to business why they should care. And I think they should. You know, let's say you're a big oil company and there's a protest near your project and a bunch of people get killed. Like that's going to come back to you, even if it's, like, it's public security forces. And so having human rights respected actually makes it much easier for well-run companies with reputations to operate. For a lot of Western companies, there's an advantage to operating somewhere where there is strong rule of law, rights are respected, 
if there's a problem in their supply chain, someone can say that and not be killed. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, these are the same companies that spend a lot of money on audits trying to understand if there are problems in their supply chain. And if someone could actually just say that, it, it would it would make things much simpler. So I think there are lots of reasons for companies to care about this. I just think there needs to be more action by them, right, to really make it clear that U.S. foreign policy actually benefits, let's say, American companies when it pushes for respect for human rights abroad. Judy Karine, is the African private sector engaged in human rights? Could we enlist them to be more engaged? Quite clearly, in my view, there's no, there's no option. There. Um, but then African private sector is also growing. The African capital begins to expand. It's got to make a choice as to whether to cozy up to the African mm-hmm. state, irrespective of how the state is for purposes of uh, building up its business, or it's got to take a position and then decide how it pitches and where it goes to. And I think that is where we are at the moment. You see, for instance, uh, Strive Masayiwa mm-hmm. in Zimbabwe and Econet, which has had to take a lot of hit because Strive decided, was very clear, that there were things he was not going to do for the sake of money. There are also investors, African capital, who have deliberately not made that choice. I was just thinking while, Chidi, you were talking, that there is a section of the African society which um, one needs to think about how to enlist, and that's the diaspora and the youth. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, It's very important when we talk about how can we basically tilt a little bit the inclination of the private sector to embrace a uh, human rights agenda to a certain degree. I think there's the anti-corruption momentum that's there. But at the same time, let's see how we can tap into the beginning of an experience that the diaspora is having. Refugees, because they are refugees for more than five, ten years sometimes, they try to basically link up with the diaspora to come up with innovative entrepreneurial ideas. One example, this is not from Africa, but just thinking out loud and whether there would be opportunities in Africa for something like this is we wrote a case study on Mexico and there was going to be some implementation of both the new tax law and a counterterrorism aspects of the banking law that were going to be very, very bad for civil society. And so this coalition of NGOs got together and actually enlisted a lot of pro bono assistance from the local business sector to get technical advice on Mm -hmm. how could this law be rewritten to have its intended good impacts without Mm -hmm. all the bad ones. And so I think that to me seemed like something that might work in different contexts, right? It wasn't so much business coming out and protesting on the streets with NGOs, but rather really just being that technical advice that the NGOs needed. I would see that exactly within the organizations and companies um, by diaspora. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you think of the U.S., the income generated by the African diaspora is enormous. They are very educated. They're into different companies within the private sector. You think of Europe, it's the same thing. And having this coalition between international organizations and companies, even if they are established outside of their countries of origin, they do interact with their countrymen and women. So that is something I could also see being able to be replicated. I totally agree on the point about the diaspora. And I wanted to add another dimension, which is the cultural industry. From West Africa, you know, people remember Fela Kuti, sure. who mm-hmm. continues to inspire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's only long after he's died that his music has started making money for his estate. Nigeria has got the 
Nollywood, for instance, oh, which is now so a multi-billion-dollar industry, mm-hmm. by the way, a lot, of, a lot of people don't think of Nollywood as private sector, mm-hmm. but it actually it is, is. Yeah. and increasingly, Nollywood has become a powerful narrative creator uh, and a powerful mobilizer of identities yes. and of yes. struggles. And so, there is tremendous possibilities within the cultural industry, uh, which is also an intellectual industry, the creative yes. industry in yeah. Africa. Absolutely. Um, I think that that marriage of capital with creativity and innovation Mm. and Mm -hmm. culture can be very powerful for the purposes that we're talking about. I couldn't agree more. We had Bobby Wine uh, on our first episode, who is a great, you know, symbol of, of that sort of tradition. And I think tapping into the entertainment sector is not only influential within the country, but I think it's a way for everyone to communicate and to see uh, the issue in a new way and to join forces. So I didn't think we were going to end this episode on such a a hopeful note, but let me uh, thank our guests and uh, I'm sure we'll have more conversations. Thanks. Thank you very much for having us again, Judd. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.